Hi, I'm Sarah Kavanaugh, and this is Peaceful Exit. Every episode, we explore death, dying, and grief through stories by authors familiar with the topic. Writers are our translators. They take what is inexpressible, impossible to explain, and they translate it into words on a page. Today, I'm talking with Todd Hara about his latest book, Last Rites, The Evolution of the American Funeral. It's a gripping historical read that traces all of our different funeral practices throughout all of time, even back to ancient Egypt. I learned so much from talking with Todd, especially because he's not just an author. In his day job, he's a fourth-generation funeral director in Delaware. He's also an embalmer, post-mortem reconstructionist, and cremationist. He knows what he's talking about. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Did you grow up hanging out in the funeral home? No. How did you get it? No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, uh, how did you get to this work? Um, I did not think I was going to do this at all. My my dad uh, was a pilot. My mom was a school teacher. I did not grow up at a funeral home. I uh, had no idea I would end up in this. But uh, my uncle that owns the funeral home after college, I, I really had no was kind of casting about, you know, I, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I started working at the funeral home part time, basically just to earn some money. You know, I tell people, you know, I think the, the work definitely found me. Mm. And uh, I was definitely taken in with what everyone does and how they care for people. And that no two days are alike. What I like about it is I'm out, I'm seeing different people, I'm in different places. It's immensely gratifying you know people think it's such sad somber work and, and sure we deal with tragedies we, we see some really really sad things but it is very gratifying to walk with people on what's perhaps one of the darkest days of their life it's always interesting how people are called to this work let's get into the book because it's it's wonderful very fascinating you cover so much ground, and I really appreciate that you go way back and all the way to the present. Um, it just is really, I hope it becomes a, a textbook. Well, thank you. Let's start with the Civil War. Like, the history of embalming is really interesting. That's something that just really fascinates me as to how, you know, embalming took off in this country and kind of took root, whereas in other parts of the world, really embalming isn't practiced with the same frequency as it is in America and it came about as, as a wartime necessity. Um, if you wanted to ship human remains during the Civil War, they had to either be placed in a, a sealed metallic coffin or embalmed. And there was really only two manufacturers during this time period that were making sealing metallic coffins that actually worked. But think about it. The nation is ramping up wartime production. All the metals being diverted into making munitions. So precious little metals being diverted into making something as frivolous as a coffin. So they were tough to find. And if you could get your hands on one, they're expensive. So really, if you wanted to ship somebody, your only option you were left with was embalming. And this is kind of where this whole cadre of embalmers kind of cropped up overnight. They were mostly, I would say, almost exclusively men with medical training. I say men because back then it was, it was only men. And after the war, most of these embalming surgeons 
did go back to practicing medicine. But kind of the interesting thing was they were in such great demand during the war. They had all these helpers and apprentices. And it's here you see kind of this medical transfer of knowledge going from the medical profession to this kind of new subsect of, of people that had this new skill. They knew how to embalm. And this is when you see the funeral director in, I would say, the modern sense kind of step forward. Yeah. So the war ends. Uh, metal isn't as scarce anymore. Why keep embalming? So my theory is that President Lincoln's funeral was kind of the catalyst for what caused embalming to stick around. After he was assassinated, Edwin Stanton devised this grand funeral that would take place in 11 cities across the United States. And this funeral tour was almost a facsimile reversal of his inauguration train ride. And in the 11 cities, the coffin was opened at each stop and mourners from these cities were invited and people were standing in line for hours and hours kind of to, to give a modern comparison to the Queen's funeral we just had recently where people were standing in line for 24 hours. Well, people were standing in line for that long to view President Lincoln. And until this time, you as an American, somebody dies in your house, you bathe them, you dress them, you bury them at the local churchyard, or maybe you're on your property, but you're well aware of the sights, sounds, and smells associated with death. You know how quickly decomposition sets in. Americans were very close to their dead at this point in our history. And some of the later stops, the president has been dead for two weeks at this point, and people are viewing him and his appearance. The, the, the newspapers are just absolutely applauding how well he looks. So it's almost like people thought they were seeing something almost magical, seeing the president before them been dead two weeks. And a lot of the comments were, he looks like he's sleeping. And the thought became, if it's good enough for the president, it's good enough for me. And, and that's kind of, I think, the nudge that kind of caused this culture shift in the way we buried our dead. And, and it wasn't just embalming. There were so many things that kind of moved the needle on this, this swing of funeral practices, pre-Civil War to post-Civil War. But embalming, I would say, would be the biggest shift. So another big shift, as you mentioned in the book, was cremation and sanitation reform. Um, so early cremation was sanitation reform. Very shortly post-Civil War, the first crematorium in America was built in 1876, and it was an eccentric Pennsylvania doctor who built the crematorium because he was worried that the graveyards in the communities were essentially poisoning the drinking water. Early on, cremation was aligned with kind of these alternate religions, and it's not that it was anti-Christian, but people drew that conclusion. And I think that's why cremation took so long to catch on because, you know, it was it was associated with not only alternate religions, but these were people that a lot of people viewed as kind of out there, if you will. You also mentioned that burning at the stake and the fire was used for punishment as well. Right? You're right, Sarah. This this was cremation was almost seen as, you know, associated with, with hellfire. Yeah. So Cremation limps along, limps along. And uh, in 1963, the cremation rate in America is only 3.7%. But two things happened that year that definitely kind of shifted the American 
attitude towards cremation. First was Jessica Mitford's book, The American Way of Death, you know, in which she absolutely excoriates the funeral profession as greedy, money grubbing, and calling cremation, you know, the simpler way. And the other is the Holy Office issues this kind of very dense document basically saying it's okay for Catholics to be cremated. And in the 60s, we start to see kind of this um, proliferation of cremation societies that are pushing cremation as, as it, kind of direct disposition, no service, touted as being simple. So there's all these forces that come together. And, and from there, you see cremation then start to creep up. And, and now it's, you know, almost 60% of Americans choose cremation. This is all so fascinating. And I like how you talk about the history behind some of the terms we still use today, like the wake and the casket. Um, let's talk about that first. What is the difference between a coffin and a casket? It's, it has to do with the number of sides. So a coffin has six sides plus the top and bottom, and a casket has four sides plus the top and bottom. And we see this shift from coffin to casket happening around the 1880s. During the Victorian era, there was kind of this softening of death, as you will. Victorians would say people have gone to their sleep. They would not say somebody has died. And so you have this kind of less anthropomorphic vessel that people are going in. Um, so instead of kind of this harsh sounding coffin that looks humanoid in shape, people are being placed into a nice sounding casket. And again, the, the name shift was partially marketing and it fed into the Victorian sense of this softening of death. So interesting. And the term the wake? Really, up until 150 years ago, the only way people could really know somebody was dead was when decomposition set in. And this is where the term the wake came from. People would literally sit bedside vigil and wait for somebody to either wake up from their trance or their cataleptic state, or the family would see one of the five signs of decomposition and know, okay, it's safe to bury this person because people were terrified, terrified of premature burial. The, the early Americans sitting and waking their loved one, you know, there are sights, sounds, and smells associated with a dead body that Americans were just not equipped to deal with that. We've distanced ourselves so far away from it that... Um, it's unfamiliar. R right. And I hear about these death doulas coaching families into what they will be seeing and experiencing. And it's because we're just not educated on it. You know, way back when, you know, your mother and your grandmother and your father and your grandfather you had done it and experienced it. So you would sit with the family and learn through osmosis. You had experienced it. So by the time you became an adult, you had probably been through several wakes at your house in your right. lifetime, and you knew exactly what to expect. Whereas now, you know, people, they're just not educated. I know people who have never seen a dead body. And, and that's not a bad thing. I don't think that's a f necessarily a failing of our society. It's just the way it is. And thank 
goodness for people like you who are out there trying to spread the word and say, hey, you know, let's let's reconnect with yeah. with our dead and dying. It's natural. I love that. Let's reconnect. You talk about the Spanish flu uh, and you talk about the fact that people were unable to be with their dead. Um, and it's another reason I feel like we're missing grieving in community these days because of COVID. Could you maybe draw a line from the Spanish flu to what's happening today? 2020, 2021, you know, at first there was so much that was unknown. You know, how is this thing spread? Can we contract it? Can we contract it from other mourners? Can we contract it from the dead? And just a, a, trying to get a handle on how can we safely handle these remains. And then, of course, we had all, you know, the uh, state and the local rules put in place. You know, at one point, we could only have 10 mourners in the mm. building at one time. And it, it definitely took a toll on the mourners as far as the funeral is a time for the public to come out and show support. And, you know, when you take that away from people, you know, I think the pandemic has caused an immense amount of complicated grief. We had people saying, we'll do something later, we'll do something later. But you look back six months, a year, and it's, I understand this, it's, it's got to be so tough to pick at that scab and reopen that old wound. And that grief wound probably will never heal properly because they didn't have the chance, the opportunity to give the send-off they wanted and start down the path to healthy grieving. And this is exactly what happened during the Spanish flu. Death care profession was just overloaded by all the, the deaths that the flu was causing. And, you know, there's stories of near where I live in Philadelphia, the seminary, they sent all these students out to help dig graves and firemen and policemen were being called upon to put together coffins and, you know, mortuaries were overloaded and the entire system was just overloaded and people were doing the best they can. But the communities were essentially just getting people buried as quickly as they could for sanitary reasons to help stop the spread. So there weren't a bunch of uh, human remains sitting around. But people then didn't have the proper opportunity to say goodbye either. So uh, it's it's a very, very similar situation, uh, you know, what happened during Spanish flu. And then 100 years later, we see almost exactly the same thing happening. I'm just really curious about what accommodations and adjustments you had to make, other than uh, reducing the number of people that came to mourn. Were there other things you had to do other than wearing maybe a mask? As far as the public facing aspect of things, we did the best we could. Funeral directors are, are very good at adapting. Uh, so very quickly, we kind of swung to, hey, anyone that wants to do their funeral arrangements via Zoom, mm. you know, we'll certainly accommodate you that way. You know, adopting DocuSign documents, we completely kind of amped up our Wi-Fi infrastructure so we could start live streaming before the pandemic people maybe would request a live stream funeral a couple times a quarter. It wasn't really a, a thing. And during and after the pandemic, now a family comes in and they expect you to offer them the live stream as kind of a standard offering. And, um, you know, just revamping 
uh, the traffic flow for uh, viewings. We were still doing viewings, but we let people come in one side of the building, pay their respects, and then they'd go out an opposite door. And then from across the building, we'd let, you know, so we would never be, you know, having more than the 10 people in the building at once. So the family, if they were even there at all, were comfortable being around people, you know, there wouldn't be a lot of contact, the normal hugging, handshaking that would take place in a pre-pandemic funeral. But it still means something if somebody comes in and, you know, says, hey, you know, Mrs. Jones, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm here for you. Yeah, you can't embrace. And and that's definitely missing a piece of the funeral puzzle. But that's the best we could do at the time. Yeah, I'm so curious about that. Like the fact that we couldn't hug each other. Was the grief muted? Did it feel like more of a viewing versus a grieving? Absolutely. And, and I, I still kind of feel that that trickle down effect. Uh, I'm still unsure if people even want to shake hands. Do you think there'll be lasting changes to your business from from this experience with COVID? Absolutely. I, I don't think all of them are bad. We're starting to get back to funerals uh, the, the, the way they were before, meaning people, we're starting to see people show up for viewings and funerals uh, back in the numbers that were pre-pandemic. It's not quite there, but it seems to be getting there. Uh, the changes that I'm talking about that I don't think are are bad. And in fact, a good thing is, you know, one, having the live stream viewing option, um, you know, the technological changes um, that, that funeral homes were forced to do and add are, I, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, a benefit for uh, the families. And, and not just speaking of our funeral home, but worldwide, uh, you know, funeral homes and funeral professionals kind of really stepped up to, uh, you know, try to fill this need and, you know, slideshows on the person's obit, things like that. It's good that we can now offer them on a more consistent basis to uh, the families we serve. You mentioned several times throughout the book that humans have this innate need to care for our dead. What do you make of that? You know, as a species, we care for each other. And that, I think, it certainly extends to uh, to death. You know, I have people that you know, they want to come in and they want to do their mom's hair. They want to do her makeup or they want to assist with the dressing. And, you know, I think all that's great. The more that people want to participate in the process, um, you know, it helps them own the process. And I know it helps them process the grief. It gets them started on that grief journey. And some things I, I look at people and I say, oh my gosh, I, I don't know how they summon the strength to get up and give a eulogy about their father, their mother. And I think, could I do that for, for my mother or father? So there's all these acts of, you know, as I, I see them, emotional courage that happen that I see on a daily basis that, uh, you know, I'm just simply in awe by. But these are all acts of people, you know, certainly owning their grief. And, you know, there's no way around grief. You've got to go through it. You've got to experience it. And if you can be part of that funeral process, definitely do it. You won't regret it. I love that. And I love the term emotional courage. I am in awe of my siblings who actually spoke at my mother's funeral and I could not. So I love that term. 
I'm sure you sat there and thought, how are they doing this? How are they doing that? Yeah, Yeah. yeah. it's, 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 um, you know, I don't know if it takes a special person or just a lot of mental fortitude. It doesn't have to be something that grand. Give the gift that you can give. Let's say you're good at arranging flowers. Well, maybe you want to put together the flower arrangements for the, your mom or dad's or spouse's service. And that's something you can do quietly at home. You can process your grief as you're arranging the flowers and you bring them to the place where the viewing or the service is going to be. And your grief process happened while you were doing the arranging. So you're doing the grief work and you don't have to get up and do it in a big public way. But also understand one of the big, big benefits of the funeral service is that it's a safe place for grief. People expect you to cry. They expect you to break down. So it's okay. So if your siblings had gotten up there, Sarah, and they had broken down halfway through the eulogy, no one's going to hold it against them. In fact, that would be natural. That would be normal. You would expect that. And you, like me, are just in awe that they were able to deliver it probably flawlessly. Totally. So I know why I like this book, but uh, why is it important for people to know where some of our customs and cultural practices come from? My hope was that somebody that read this book would then feel comfortable going to a funeral, planning a funeral. They would feel armed with the facts to say, hey, this isn't something that's scary, but a funeral, the the modern American funeral is kind of the culmination of thousands of years of ritual and tradition and, and this is where we are at this point. So if you go into that funeral arrangement conference armed with the facts, sure. Is it going to be an emotional conference because uh, a loved one has died? Absolutely. But having a foundation of kind of knowing, you know, what the ritual looks like, you might have a little bit more courage to go into that that conference or step into that viewing room to greet a community member who's just lost a loved one. Yeah, that's great. So uh, with Peaceful Exit, we talk about cultural and spiritual practices. Are there different ceremonies that you've experienced in your funeral home that you've made accommodations for? And I'm I'm kind of thinking of, uh, in the book, you talk about how you build these sort of living rooms. They start building living rooms that are nicer than people's own living rooms. So they want to come to the funeral home. And so I'm thinking they're probably going to want to replicate what was happening in their living room, which was you know, in line with their faith in your living room or your funeral home. Does that happen? Or do you lay out kind of how things work in terms of the viewing or? We, we make suggestions to people um, based on what we found works best in whatever they're looking to do. But that being said, this is, this is your funeral, not your specifically, but you're planning this funeral for a loved one, a family member, a friend, whoever it is. So this is your event. You're coming to us to pay for our professional guidance. But at the end of the day, we want this to feel like you own it. So, you know, I have seen, uh, you know, people that honestly bring in half their house, knickknacks and stuff that that are meaningful. And you know what? I, I think that's wonderful because you know, I'll see the wife or the son or the daughter back there, you know, holding out the fishing rod that was was dad's and, you know, having a story. And and these items can connect to different people in the decedent's life that, you know, maybe didn't go fishing with them, but 
they play basketball with them. So, you know, they'll move on to the basketball. So these different personal mementos and artifacts are certainly meaningful, but but it's not just the physical things. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about eulogies earlier. I have heard some some absolutely just beautiful stories and remembrances shared from family members and uh, the community. People will come and they'll offer their gift of music during a viewing or a service. And we even kind of jumping back to the mementos and, and the living room, you know, we even had somebody bring in their, their motorcycle and park it next to the casket one time. Whatever the family needs to do, that's awesome. You know, to, to kind of uh, make this a special event. Absolutely. Let's make it happen. So uh, I have a friend who's a death midwife and there's death doulas. She talks about kind of this is kind of a reemergence of women in death care. And it's a, it, it was always a common practice. And I think you say this in the book of catching babies and taking care of our dead was kind of in many cultures is, is a women's sort of calling. Um, but then they got pushed aside a little bit when embalming came around and it was became a business. And now it feels like it's coming into balance. Does that feel accurate? It does. I, I read the st- statistic that over 75% of everyone graduating from mortuary school is now a female. So hmm. it's, it's rapidly becoming a female-dominated space. Uh, and, and I'll share this with you. My, my family's been doing this for, for a long, long time. My great, great, great grandfather was a tradesman undertaker and his son, Isaac, fought in the Civil War and he's the one that brought embalming into the family business. And Isaac was a carpenter by trade and his wife was a milliner. She was a woman that was ahead of her time. She owned her own business in town, but being a milliner, uh, she knew how to sew. So she would sew the interiors to the coffin. So it was very much a husband and wife business but they had one child who was a daughter. And Isaac told her, he said, you know, this, this business is no place for a woman. So she was not allowed to go into the family business. Now, this is a hundred years ago, but, you know, it's almost laughable now to think that that's, that was the attitude back then. That this is, quote unquote, no place for a woman when this is now rapidly becoming a female-dominated profession. Well, the last chapter in your books, all about the future of death rights and practices and green burials. And, you know, you say simply a funeral is the product of its time and place. And all the research you've done, it shows that that's the way it's been all along. So talk a little bit about what's emerging. When people want to talk about the future of funerals, typically what they want to talk about or what they're thinking is disposition options. So for the first couple centuries in America, your disposition choice was burial, burial, or burial. And then cremation comes on the scene uh, right after the Civil War. It takes 100 years to really gain any traction. But at this point in our history, year 2023, almost 60% of Americans are choosing cremation. So if you die now, your choice is burial or cremation. Well, there's some other choices that are coming to market, if you will. Alkaline hydrolysis, which is sometimes called water cremation, um, is legal in 22 states in America. Wow. The resulting product from that 
looks just like flame cremation. You're going to get essentially bone fragments that uh, are pulverized. Uh, they look just like cremated remain ash, if you will. Uh, you are going to get about 20% more because uh, there's not that desiccation from the flames that's happening. But the end product is very much the same. And then just very recently, NOR, natural organic reduction, also uh, that's basically human composting, uh, was first legalized in Washington state. And now a bunch of other states are legalizing or there's pending legislation, including here in Delaware. And that is basically an accelerated form of green burial. And green burial being person in a biodegradable casket or shroud being buried directly into the earth with no outer burial container. NOR is going to accelerate that from, you know, however long Mother Nature takes, let's say a period of years, condensed down into a 60-day period. So the family is getting back a cubic yard of sterile soil. And the facilities, they do test this so uh, that the family is getting something back that is, is sterile and they can do what they want with it in the same way they can do what they want with cremated remains. They can spread it, they can plant a tree, they can you know, bury it. And if they don't want the entire cubic yard, then a lot of these facilities have an agreement with some sort of natural space where they will then go spread the soil there. I do mention in the book uh, something that's theoretical at this point, but I could see gaining some traction down the road, promotion, essentially freeze drying of uh, the remains. And the final product would be very similar to the final product in NOR, kind of, mm. you know, a sterile, like a sterile soil almost. Mm. I found that very interesting. Uh, again, it's, it's all theoretical at this point. I don't even know that anyone's actively testing it in America right now. But what I think is, is more exciting is, is not the disposition choices, but the funeralization choices. And the pandemic certainly kind of spurred these on or, or probably accelerated these at a more rapid pace than might have otherwise happened. But I think certainly by the end of my lifetime, we'll be seeing VR funerals as maybe not normal or the thing, but certainly as a, a standard offering. Sarah, you could be sitting on your couch wearing a pair of VR goggles, and I could be sitting on my couch with a pair of VR goggles, but we could end up, I don't know, on uh, Mount Rainier greeting Mrs. Smith saying, you know, I'm sorry that your husband. So, you know, the option to have a, a, a virtual viewing anywhere. That's wild. Provides almost limitless opportunities uh, and possibilities. And again, kind of along that same line is holograms. I don't know if you saw it in the news. They did a hologram of Rob Kardashian for Kim Kardashian's 40th birthday using old footage. I could definitely see this becoming part of the funeral where the decedent themselves stands up and offers a song or recites a poem or has a message for the audience or you scan a QR code on a headstone and the hologram pops up. So, uh, you know, I definitely think technology is going to change the funeral space down the road. Um, looking into the metaverse, I wonder, and I, I don't know the answer to this, but I, I often wonder if people are going to get away from kind of the old stone monuments in cemeteries mm -hmm. and we're going to yeah. move our monument creation into the metaverse. 
That's a whole new vision. <laughs> We're going virtual. We're going virtual. Yeah. So, so there, there's a lot of there's a lot going on, and uh, like I said, a funeral is a product of its time and place, and yeah, who knows what the American funeral is going to look like in 50 years? But I can promise you this: it's not going to look like the funeral of today. What does a peaceful exit look like to you? I think being surrounded by certainly the people you love and in a comfortable, hopefully known setting um, at home. I definitely think the home hospice movement is, um, is, is, is absolutely wonderful. And just having the things that comforted you in life, so the people, the music, the sights, the smells, the sounds, to help ease that transition into the great unknown. And that would be a peaceful exit for me. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was, it was a pleasure. And thank you for doing this podcast and kind of, you know, spreading the word. Death education, I think, is, is absolutely vital. Thank you for listening to Peaceful Exit. You can learn more about this podcast and my online course at my website, peacefulexit.net. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. You can rate and review this show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Large Media. You can find them at larjmedia.com. Special thanks to Ricardo Russell for the original music throughout this podcast. More of his music can be found on Bandcamp. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Kavanaugh, and this is Peaceful Exit.